Welcome to the Purdue Commercial AgCast from the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture. I'm Jim Minter, Director of Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, and joining me today is Michael Langemeyer, Associate Director of the Center and Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue. Today's podcast focuses on the ag outlook following the release of USDA's May World Ag Supply and Demand Estimates. We're going to start off, Michael, talking a little bit about what's going on in the livestock sector. And, you know, it's been pretty remarkable in terms of the impact plant shutdowns have had on both beef and pork production. You know, looking at a combination of beef and pork production, if you go back to kind of that late uh, March, beginning of uh, April timeframe, uh, on a combined basis, we were putting out about 1.17 billion bush uh, billion pounds of uh, beef and pork combined. And then over the next, uh, what, five or six weeks, we dropped that production level all the way down to 750 million pounds. So, you know, a reduction there of, uh, what, over 350 million pounds relative to where we were just uh, roughly five or so weeks ago. And it's had a big impact. And of course, it's largely because we've had so many plants shut down around the nation because of COVID-19. As you look at the poultry side, the story has been a little bit different. Uh, we did see a significant reduction in poultry production. Poultry production on a weekly basis at the federally inspected plants, uh, going back to roughly the beginning of uh, early March, uh, was about 1.23 billion pounds. And then as we got into about the middle of April, it bottomed out at about 1.06 billion pounds. And then since then, it's actually rebounds. We've had, uh, what, three weeks in a row where poultry production has actually climbed above the prior week. And so uh, the most recent data we have is uh, from the week of uh, ending uh, May 8th. And that uh, poultry production number at the federally inspected plants was 1.17 billion pounds. So still a little bit below where we were uh, when all this kind of got started with respect to the slowdowns and some plant closures. Uh, but but not by a lot compared to what we were doing, and certainly a, a really much different picture than what we're seeing in the beef and pork sectors. And then as you turn and think about, you know, one of the headline stories lately has been uh, looking at whether or not this is going to result in a, in a shortage of meat available for uh, retail consumers. I thought it'd be interesting to just go back and look at the quantity of meat that's available uh, for purchase by U.S. Uh, consumers. And maybe we'll digress a little bit on the, just the, how this data is put together. So we don't know what people actually eat. Um, and this data is sometimes referred to as consumption data. And that's a little bit of a misnomer. What we do know is the pounds of meat that are produced by the industry. Um, that's measured on a weekly basis at the, at the plants uh, by USDA. Uh, so we know that those quantities, and then uh, USDA uses a couple of conversion factors to estimate what that means at the wholesale level, and ultimately what that means when it gets down to a retail type package that's available for a consumer. So with that caveat in mind, what we're really talking about here are the pounds of uh, red meat and poultry that are effectively supplied to U.S. consumers, and that's net of um, imports and net of exports, right? So it's, it's the pounds that are available domestically. And so, you know, if you track that data over time, it, there's quite a bit of variability in that data. If you go back, uh, oh, into the 2002 to about the 2007 timeframe, 
U.S. consumers were consistently uh, being supplied about 220 to maybe 222 pounds per capita. Um, and then, of course, when grain prices increased substantially, uh, resulting in some large losses in the livestock sector, uh, producers reduced the size of their herds, and the su- uh, p- quantity of meat available to U.S. consumers actually declined by about 10%. Uh, so if you look at the 2012, 2013, 2014 timeframe, uh, U.S. consumers were faced with about 202 to maybe 204 pounds per capita of uh, beef and pol- uh, red meat and poultry, so beef, pork, and poultry combined. And then here in recent years, we've been expanding the size of the, of the uh, livestock uh, herds and, and also the poultry flocks. Um, and so if you look at 2019, for example, Uh, U.S. consumers had about 223 pounds per capita available. And so the question is, in in 2020, what what are those uh, per capita supplies going to look like? USDA, on their uh, World Ag Supply Demand Estimates this week, revised that estimate downward, but they revised it to 217 pounds. Uh, That's only about a 3% decline uh, compared to last year. It's a slightly larger decline than what USDA had been forecasting earlier in the year, but Still, it's 217 pounds. That's about 15 pounds per capita more than U.S. consumers had available in 2014. Um, So when people think about whether or not there's a meat shortage, uh, I guess my perspective is it's not a meat shortage, but there are going to be some situations where a consumer might walk into a grocery store and not find the cut of meat that they were looking for when when they were thinking about when they walked in the door. And so it's more of a uh, when you think of it from a from a shortage standpoint, it's more like a, a distribution issue, um, and particularly a product choice issue, as opposed to having enough food to eat or enough animal protein to consume. And I, I think that's a little different perspective. And you know, the 217 pounds per capita, um, it wouldn't surprise me if that gets revised downward a bit a little later in the year. But still, I would not expect the numbers to drop below where we were in that 2012, 2013, 2014 timeframe. Certainly, uh, during that timeframe, we really weren't talking about having a food shortage. So I think there is a distribution issue. There's going to be some points in time when consumers are going to walk into a store thinking they want a particular cut of meat uh, and look in the case and discover it's not available uh, on that particular day at that particular retail outlet. Uh, but that's not really, from my perspective anyway, not, not really the same as a shortage. Uh, it's more of a distributional issue. And, and uh, uh, from a livestock uh, and meat production perspective, there's still going to be a lot of animal protein available for, uh, for consumers to consume here in, in 2020. Let's take a look at the prices a little bit. Uh, the prices have changed a lot. Um, wholesale pork values plummeted at first. Um, you know, they were running very close to year-ago levels in that kind of late March time frame, mid to late March. And then late March, beginning of April, they dropped pretty sharply. So in, in that in March time frame, those prices at the wholesale pork cutout level running about uh, just short of $80 a hundredweight. They dropped down to 53 to $54 a hundredweight uh, in, in April. And then here these last uh, roughly three weeks have really skyrocketed. So uh, I think the most recent data we had uh, was from last week. Uh, the weekly pork cutout averaged just short of $114 a hundredweight. If you think about the bottom, which was at fifty-three fifty-five dollars uh, versus last week, that's an increase of about 112%. Uh, 
so I didn't have a chance to go back and double check on all the data sets that, that I maintain, but uh, that's one of the, if it's not the largest short-term price increase uh, on record, it's certainly one of the largest. And uh, I didn't see one, and certainly in recent years, we saw a shift in that wholesale pork value that was of that magnitude over that short of a time frame. Um, some controversy about the prices for live animals versus uh, product prices, particularly at that wholesale and, and to some extent retail level. Uh, live animal prices have recovered uh, after taking a, a pretty sharp dip, but they have not recovered to the same extent that we've seen wholesale pork values increase. So again, if you look at where we were in that kind of late March, early April timeframe, uh, prices were running very close to year ago levels. Then we dropped pretty sharply. Uh, so to, to put some numbers on that, we were looking at uh, base slaughter hog prices on a carcass weight basis, uh, weekly averages, in the mid 60s, between 65 and 66 dollars, dropped all the way down to uh, a weekly average that was just below 49 dollars a hundred weight. And then here again, uh, looking at data through last week, we were up to 70 dollars. So, a significant rise, but not the same percentage increase that what we've seen on the wholesale side. So, uh, that's always creates some concern on the part of uh, producers, I think, in particular, because. Uh, if you look at the change in wholesale prices versus the change in live prices, I think sometimes there's this expectation that you would see a one-to-one -one relationship. We don't often see that, and particularly in an environment like this. And, of course, what's happened here is with the closures of the plants, there are more hogs available for processing than the plants can handle. That's depressed processor demand. Uh, and at the same time, since there's fewer pounds of pork coming out of those plants going into those wholesale and retail channels, uh, that's driven up the price at the wholesale and retail level. So you've got this divergence and it's really a capacity constraint issue. And uh, I know that's frustrating on the part of, uh, for, for producers in particular, and to some extent consumers to, to see that kind of disparity. But if you think of it from a kind of a fundamental economic perspective, the plants are faced with more hogs to process than they can handle and that has effectively depressed their demand for, uh, for buying those live animals. And so that's, that's what we're seeing take place. On the beef side, we have seen uh, a pretty dramatic increase in wholesale beef prices just in the last three year, weeks or so. Uh, just a few weeks ago, those wholesale prices uh, for the box beef cutoff for the choice, uh, six to nine weights, um, were averaging about 230 to 232. Uh, again, last week's data, 441. Um, so an increase of, uh, uh, well, not quite 100%. So we had 112% increase in pork side, not quite that big of a percentage change in um, on the beef side, but it's occurred a little more rapidly than it did on the pork side. So again, same phenomena. Um, you've got plants shut down. They're not processing the same quantity of beef they were able to process a few weeks ago. So that's reduced supplies available at the wholesale and retail level, push prices up at that level. Um, and at the same time, it's had a depressing effect on live animal demand because again, the, the, the plants are faced with more cattle to process than they can handle in the short run. And so, you know, that's been, that's been, negative for, uh, for for example, for slaughter cattle prices. And so looking at those slaughter cattle prices, when all this was getting started and got kind of late March uh, timeframe, 
we were looking at uh, slaughter cattle prices that were uh, oh about 120, just short of that. We dipped all the way down to I think a weekly average in the Southern Plains, where a lot of the fed cattle are are marketed, uh, down to about 96, 97 dollars on a weekly average basis. Here, uh, over the last week or two, we've seen some strength. Uh, again, last week's prices we averaged about uh, not quite 105. So. We're seeing some improvement. Fed cattle prices up about $10 since the bottom uh, in April. But uh, uh, again, it's not the same magnitude of increase that we've seen in the wholesale side um, and it, for the exact same reasons that we are not seeing that same uh, percentage increase on the, on the pork side. Same reasons. Uh, fewer pounds of beef available for consumers at the wholesale and retail level, pushing up those prices at wholesale and retail and at the same time, more cattle to be processed than the plants can handle in the face of the closures. And that's depressed demand for those, those animals at the live basis or live, uh, live market level. So I, w- I wanted to set the stage a little bit with respect to the livestock sector, because one of the things that's really going to be important for corn farmers and crop farmers is going to be what's taking place with respect to demand for corn. And I think one of the key points is, uh, even though we're looking at large reductions here in the short run in beef and pork production uh, and to a lesser extent poultry production, we still have large animals out there, large numbers of animals out there. They're still consuming feed. So feed demand looks like it's still going to remain relatively strong despite the disruptions that we've seen uh, in those livestock markets. So Let's kind of turn our attention and, and look at what USDA is forecasting for corn. I know, Michael, you, you've been taking a look at this. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yes, uh, we're looking at record large corn production in 2020. In fact, uh, right now the estimate is 16 billion bushels. Now, that does, that does assume that uh, corn acreage is going to be 97 million. We'll talk some more about that. And so that is part of the, part of the assumption there. But this would be, this would be uh, by far and away the, the largest crop. Uh, in 2016, we had 15.1 uh, billion bushels, and so 16 bushel would be considerably considerably above that. Yeah, it's and we've been anticipating a large crop. This number is a little bigger than what you and I were for talking about a few weeks ago when we did a, a webinar. Uh, but part of that's because, as you pointed out, uh, USDA is using a slightly larger acreage number than we are, and they're using the acreage number that came straight out of the planning intentions report. And we'll talk more about whether or not we think that's going to happen. Um, on the soybean side, uh, on the soybean side, we're we're looking at a recovery from last year, as you'd expect, because acreage is expected to be up quite a bit uh, from last year uh, with all the planting issues. Uh, but uh, the, the, uh, in in 2020, we're looking at about 4.1 billion bushels. Oh, that is that is lower uh, than what it was in 16, 17, and 18 when we had close to 90 million acres of soybeans. But as you point out, a big increase compared to last year. Last year, I think we had uh, uh, not not quite 3.6 billion bushels of soybeans. So 4.1 um, in round numbers, about a half, about 500 million bushels more of soybeans this year expected for production uh, than than last year, based on that acreage estimate coming out of the planning intentions report. And then secondly, an expectation that we would see trend line yields. And the trend line yield for soybeans this year is pretty strong. It's um, just a little bit short of 50 bushels per acre. So very close to 50 uh, on an average basis nationwide. That's a, 
I didn't know if I'd ever say that, Michael. Truthfully, that's a pretty high yield number for a national average, if you think about yes, it. Yes, it sure is. Data. You'd expect maybe that in, in, in parts of the Corn Belt, but that's a U.S. average. Yeah, that's you and I have looked at the data going back quite some ways. And, uh, of course, that's, that's not a number that if you'd asked me, say, 10 or 15 years ago, that I would have been forecasting as a trend line yield. But anyway, um, Let's talk a little bit about the acreage again. We said 97 million acres is USDA's forecast. That's coming straight out of the planning intentions report. Um, the crop progress report came out Monday afternoon, and it indicated that about two-thirds of U.S. corn acreage has already been planted as of Sunday the 10th. Um, and as uh, we, we kind of learned last year, uh, that Crop progress report is an estimate of what people think was going to be planted, you know, acres that were thought to be intended for corn and what percentage of those have been planted. And that still leaves some leeway in terms of people making some changes, doesn't it? And on the soybean side, uh, USDA's planting attentions estimate was 83 and a half million acres. Um, again, that crop progress report that came out Monday afternoon indicated that about 38% of the soybean acreage was estimated to have been planted as of Sunday. Um, so that's a big bump in terms of soybean acreage compared to last year. I think that's up about 7.4 million acres above 2019 when we only planted, I think, 76.1 million acres. You and I are going to talk a little later. We both think that that soybean acreage number could go up a little bit. Uh, and the corn acreage number could actually come down a little bit. Is that right, Michael? Yes, and, and, and if it does break that 85 million acres, it would be the third largest uh, you know, soybean, soybean acreage in the, in the U.S. I mean, you go back to 14, 15, and 16, um, it's maybe 83 to 85 million acres. And so even though we're down from what we were in 17 and 18, uh, still pretty, pretty, uh, pretty strong acreage in 2020. Yeah, so let's kind of revisit that a little bit. So the March planting intentions, 97 million acres on corn, 83 and a half million acres on soybeans. But economic conditions, as we know, have changed since March 1st. And so the question is, do we think farmers are going to alter their plans from those March planting intentions? And you've taken a look at uh, the relationship between soybean and corn prices. You might talk about that a little bit. Yes, first of all, it's important to point out that when we talk about changes in acreage, we're, we're talking about fairly small changes, uh, one to two million acres shift perhaps, uh, going from away from corn into soybeans. And, and you know, let's talk a little bit about why that might occur, might occur. Well, if you go back earlier this year, we were looking at a soybean to uh, corn ratio that was positive towards corn, uh, that was attractive uh, relative to corn. That's why we had, I think that's why we had such a, a large acreage in the planning intentions report. That's changed dramatically. We went from a soybean to corn ratio pre-COVID-19, around 2.4 in some cases, a little a, a few weeks before mid-March. It was actually lower than that, all the way up to 2.8 recently. And so just a much stronger uh, soybean to corn price ratio, which of course would favor soybeans. Yeah, and the question is going to be, is it going to be, an, uh, did the shift happen early enough that people would actually respond to it? And then, as you kind of indicate, to what level would they respond to it? And so... Uh, yeah, the, the, recent, the recent ratio is, is, is they probably, uh, probably wasn't early enough, the recent increase. Uh, but, but certainly, if you go back to early April, uh, we were already looking at something that was, that was above average, uh, you know, 2.6, 2.7. 
you know, so the reasons why you wouldn't see a shift are because maybe people have already put on herbicides that would preclude sw- shifting to soybeans. Uh, perhaps they've already applied some nitrogen fertilizer that would, they would want to take advantage of with corn. So kind of depends on what stage uh, an individual was at and uh, maybe what part of the corn belt you're in, Michael, because I think you've talked about this a number of times uh, with respect to the eastern versus the western corn belt. Yeah, I think the eastern corn belt, we'll see, we'll see some second-year soybeans, whereas that would be pretty rare in the western corn belt. Uh, in the western corn belt, I still think you'll see uh, quite a bit of continuous corn. Obviously, uh, if you have 95 million acres of corn and 85 million acres of soybeans, roughly, you've got some continuous corn. Uh, but but I think in the eastern corn belt, in particular, uh, we're going to we're going to see uh, more soybean acreage that was that one, uh, what was presented in the planning intention report. So let's think a little bit about the demand side for corn. And I think the real question is how long will a, a pretty weak demand environment persist for both corn and soybeans? Uh, and on the corn side, it's really about ethanol exports and then feed demand. And we'll talk about all three of those. So. You know, one of the things that was interesting uh, to me was to go and look at the ethanol plant margins to see how profitable or unprofitable ethanol production has been lately. And Iowa State University maintains a, on their website at the Center for Agricultural and Rural Development um, daily estimates of ethanol plant operating margins. And if you go back to last fall, and especially November, uh, early December, we had some pretty strong margins. Um, on a per gallon basis above uh, return to over operating cost. Iowa State was estimating uh, at some point there, I think uh, right around the 1st of December, that that topped out at about 36 cents per gallon above operating cost. And then that started dropping pretty sharply, particularly as as oil prices and gasoline prices came down. Um, That made ethanol uh, less competitive uh, with gasoline and really, really hurt ethanol demand hurt corn demand going into ethanol. And that operating margin actually uh, turned negative um, during part of uh, January. And then we had an extended negative period in March and the very beginning of April. Uh, But since then, it started to improve. It bottomed out at about negative 12 cents per gallon. uh, And that was towards the end of March, I think. Then we saw kind of a gradual improvement since then. And the most recent data, which is from last week, uh, I think this is actually from the 8th of, of May, the daily margin was estimated at positive 16 cents. So from the end of March to um, uh, the 8th of May, a swing of about 28 cents per gallon to the plus side. And that's good news for corn farmers. That does suggest uh, improving margins. That does suggest that maybe some of the plants that are shut down uh, or at least maybe starting to think about uh, returning to operation. Uh, kind of a question mark in terms of how positive that margin has to get before some of those plants that are offline will come back online. But, you know, one of the things that's really hurt the corn market the last couple of months has been the decline in ethanol uh, demand as ethanol plants around the country have either shut down or dramatically slowed down their operations. Uh, so if we could see an improvement there, I think that would be good news. And of course, as the U.S. economy starts to open up and expectations for more travel on the part of U.S. consumers, uh, maybe a little more business travel, et cetera, that would be a plus going forward. So maybe a hint of optimism there with the improvement in ethanol margins. But 
you know, when you look at the USDA forecast, uh, again, coming off that World Ag Supply Demand Estimate, um, USDA did substantially reduce their estimate for the bushels of corn that were going to go into ethanol production this year. Uh, they dropped that down to just below 5 billion bushels uh, here for the 2019 crop year. At 2018 crop year, that uh, we used uh, oh, about 5.3, actually maybe closer to 5.4 billion bushels. So a significant decline relative to the 2018 crop year. That was pretty much in line with what we were expecting, I think, about a month or so ago. And we did our, our early April webinar, Michael. We were talking about that uh, corn going into ethanol probably being in the ballpark of about 5 billion bushels for this crop year. The surprise on the uh, World Ag Supply Demand report this week, at least to me, was the USDA got a little more optimistic about ethanol demand for the 2020 crop year. And they pushed that up to 5.2 billion bushels. So that's an increase of about 250 million bushels uh, compared to the 2019 crop year. That implies a recovery in the U.S. economy, uh, an increase in, in travel, uh, increase in gasoline usage, and uh, uh I guess the question mark is how rapidly this U.S. economy is going to recover. If you look at where um, the, the reduction in, in ethanol demand has really had an impact, it's had a big impact here in the uh, Eastern Corn Belt. So one of the things that we have on our website is the uh, uh, Center for Commercial Agriculture's Crop Basis Tool. And one of our faculty members, Nathan Thompson, uh, maintains that site. And he updated uh, actually just this morning. So he updates every Friday. Um, that site is based on cash prices on Wednesdays versus, cash, or versus futures prices on uh, Wednesday afternoons. And if you look at the corn basis here in Indiana, and I'm, I, I was looking to this uh, earlier today at the uh, basis here in Tippecanoe County, which is where Purdue is located, you know, the basis has been extraordinarily strong all year long until the COVID-19 impact started to hit. And we really started to pull back on gasoline consumption, um, the big decline in oil prices, gasoline prices making ethanol less competitive. That all came together in the month of March. Uh, and so we were looking at basis levels that were uh, historically very positive. Uh, and all of a sudden, we have dropped back to pretty close to the three-year average. So we've been benefiting here in the Eastern Corn Belt from strong demand for corn, uh, particularly in light of the fact that we had tight supplies coming out of the 2019 crop year. Uh, and now all of a sudden, we've lost that. So uh, here in the Eastern Corn Belt, the impact on cash prices has been somewhat of a double whammy. You've got weakness in futures prices combined with weakening basis that has really driven down cash corn prices here in the Eastern Corn Belt. And, uh, um, you know, if you look ahead uh, into the July time frame and into that rest of May into the June and, and July, looking at basis computed off of July futures, you know, it looks like we're probably going to hang pretty close to the three-year average. The caveat to that would be if the U.S. economy get really strengthens, maybe we could push that basis back above the three-year average, but I don't think we're going to get the premium back that we had, you know, truthfully all the way last fall uh, through the winter and until about the beginning of March. I don't think we're going to be able to get back to those levels. But uh, uh, so that's been the double whammy, and then it's really hurt corn prices and, and corn profitability here in, in the eastern Corn Belt. Let's take a look at exports. 
uh, USDA's forecast for exports, they revised downward uh, here on the uh, most recent report. They're forecasting 1.78 billion bushels. That's down from 2.07 a year ago uh, for the 18 crop, uh, 2.44 for the 17 crop. So that gives you an idea as to what kind of a magnitude of reduction in exports we're looking at. That's a, a pretty dramatic decline in exports over the course of the last two years. Looking ahead to the 2020 crop, USDA got a little more optimistic. Their forecast is for 2.15 billion bushels of exports. It actually pushes exports above the 18 crop year, but keeps it below uh, keeps it below the uh, uh, 2017 crop year. And again, it implies a recovery, economic recovery in the importing countries. Because if you think about why corn is exported from the U.S. into other countries. It's to uh, for their livestock sector to provide animal protein to consumers in those countries. And the demand for animal protein is driven by income levels. And if income levels remain weak, that could pull back on demand for animal protein in those countries. So, again, uh, a bit of optimism, I guess, on the part of USDA with respect to recovery in those importing countries on, uh, on a broader basis for their, for their economies and, and consumer income levels. You've looked at feed demand, Michael, and uh, I think that's uh, obviously a key point for corn demand. Uh, maybe you could talk to us. Yes, in, in, in 2020, uh, they're expecting about 6 billion bushels to go to, to uh, U.S. feed and residual corn usage. That would be the highest level since 2007. So that's a, you know, a very strong demand for corn uh, for feed. I think there's two things going on there that are pretty important to note. Uh, one is we have a lot of animals on feed. You know, even though even though the uh, we've had some uh, price shocks there once, if we get the packing plants uh, back at full capacity, uh, we, we, we'll, we'll, we'll get a lot uh, larger meat supplies, reflecting the fact that we've got quite a few animals on feed. I think the other thing that's going on here uh, is when the ethanol plants had to slow down production, and some of them even uh, closed for a while temporarily, uh, we, we had to switch some rations away from DDGs into corn. And so I, th I think that's uh, resulted in a uh, re relatively strong uh, demand for corn for feed purposes. Yeah, so for clarity, that 6 billion bushels you're talking about is really for the 2020 crop year. Their forecast for the 19 crop year is 5.7 uh, billion bushels. But I think your, your basic argument applies in both cases. We've got relatively large livestock numbers, and we haven't seen any indication yet of, of, of large-scale liquidation. So um, there's a little bit of an open question as to what's going to happen with that 2020, but it's, it's clearly betting on a continuation of strong feed demand for a large livestock sector. So let's kind of summarize the corn situation a little bit. Corn production this year likely to set a new record unless we have some severe weather problems. Um, so looking at trend line yields, uh, a new record for corn production. Um, ethanol demand collapsed in that March-April timeframe. Uh, the real question there, I think, is how rapidly will it recover? How rapidly will gasoline usage pick up? Um, I'm a little bit concerned that weak ethanol demand could linger uh, longer than perhaps some people think uh, and likely to linger until the economy really shows signs of recovery. We'll know a lot more about that in a month or two as we see some response on the part of consumers to opening up the U.S. economy again, but uh, uh, I'm a little bit skeptical that we're going to see uh, ethanol demand recover as quickly maybe as, as perhaps what USDA has been su suggesting. 
Um, USDA's got 2019 crop exports forecast to fall about 14% below 2018s. Um, to do that, we're going to have to pick up the pace. Uh, we're actually lagging more than that right now if you look at the combination of shipments and sales that are on the books. That means we're going to have to play catch up the next three months to hit USDA's export target. I'm a little concerned about whether or not that's going to happen in the current environment. So I'm a little worried that the export, that the weaker exports could give us uh, uh, maybe a little larger carryover than what USDA is currently forecasting. And then if you look ahead to 2021, their forecast of uh, roughly a 20, 21% increase in exports strikes me as a little optimistic, largely because it's going to require a significant improvement in uh, consumer incomes in those importing countries. So to me, the big question marks really surround the rate of export recovery and the rate of ethanol usage. Um, and admittedly, those are both really tough to forecast right now. So if you look at... Well, even, even, even though the, um, you know, we, we said several different times in the last, and in the last few uh, minutes here uh, that, we, that the USDA might be relatively optimistic with regard to their forecast for, for, for ethanol demand, uh, exports, and perhaps even feed. And so even though corn prices are relatively low, it's very important to point out there's still quite a bit of downside risk on corn prices. Yeah, good point. And let's let's just uh, think about that some, for a second. Uh, planning and budgets, I uh, need to reflect that. As, at least that's the scenario uh, where corn prices could be even lower uh, than what than what the WASDE report indicated uh, in in the recent release, which was a U.S. price of three twenty. Yeah. So if you look at their carryover estimate, they're currently suggesting that coming out of the nineteen crop uh, crop year, which ends at the end of August, that we would carry over about fifteen percent of usage. That's in the ballpark of what you and I have been talking about for the last few weeks, so we didn't find that too surprising. Uh, they've got the carryover at the end of the 2020 crop year, which would be August of 2021, at about 22% of usage. And again, as we've just indicated, you know, there's a chance it could be even bigger than that. Um, if you look at their price projections, uh, they did lower their uh, monthly average, their marketing year average uh, for the 2019 crop to 360. Um, if you look at, and I guess actually they did that a month ago, if you look at um, the 2020 crop, this is their first estimate for the marketing year average for the 2020 crop, and they came in at 320, so 40 cents per bushel lower than in 2019. And as you indicated, if that carryover is even bigger than that 22% we're talking about right now, there's a chance that that marketing year average could be closer to three dollars than three twenty. Um, so uh, I think you know you you like to look at budgets and like to do a lot of uh, projections for the future, Michael. I think you kind of are a little concerned about what kind of a number people are going to be plugging into budgets for uh, the future as they make long run long range plans. Yeah, that's, and it's not just the next year with a twenty two percent carryover. Uh, that's going to have some legs. Uh, it's going to take a while to reduce that carryover to something closer to 10%. Yeah, good point. So not a very rosy picture, but that's that's the numbers we're looking at at the moment. What about demand for soybeans? Really the key there is going to be export demand. Crush demand, as we indicated with the feed demand, probably going to remain pretty strong because of those strong live, livestock numbers. Uh, the export demand is is uh, 
much more of an open question. Let's look at those numbers. In 2019, USDA has revised their estimate for exports down to 1.68 billion bushels. That's down a, kind of a modest amount compared to uh, the 2018 year, which was at 1.75 billion bushels. Um, again, uh, we're lagging that pace. So to even hit the USDA target, we need to pick up the pace of export sales here the next three months. Um, so that's, that's an open question. And then as you look at um, the 2020 crop year, USDA is forecasting a pretty significant recovery in exports to 2.05 billion bushels. So, um, you know, that's an increase of almost 400 million bushels uh, relative to what they're forecasting for 2019. Uh, that's about a 22% increase from uh, 2019. Um, I think you and I are both a little concerned as to whether or not we can hit that in the 2020 crop year. Yeah, that's a pretty big uh, export estimate. That, that's for sure. Uh, it's not that much lower than what we saw in 2017. Yeah, for reference, uh, 2017 was at 2.13 billion bushels. So, uh, and they're forecasting 2.05 for uh, the 2020 crop year. What that so implies, close to recovery in exports. Yeah, it's a recovery, and it really implies that we're going to see uh, a boost in, in exports of soybeans to, to China. Uh, they don't provide the individual country estimates on this particular report, but uh, we're going to see a bump there if, if we're going to hit that 2.05. So uh, on the soybean side, 2020 could be the largest crop since 2015. So far in this marketing year, exports are running below the pace needed to hit uh, the USDA's export target. Um, domestic crush demand looks pretty good. That's going to be supported by those large livestock inventories. Um, I think the big question mark, especially in the 2020 crop year, is USDA is forecasting a pretty strong recovery in exports. And, uh, you know, will the export demand really be that strong? I mean, there's really a couple of things going on there. One is, are we going to see a recovery in the Chinese market in terms of uh, recapturing uh, soybean exports to China? And then secondly, are we going to see enough of an improvement in the economies in the importing countries uh, to give other importing countries to, uh, to, to, to boost those exports as well along with, with China. And so uh, I guess we both have a little bit of concern there. If you look at the carryover numbers, this was maybe one of the bigger surprises, at least for me, when I looked at the report and started plugging it in. Um, when USDA forecast their ending stocks estimate uh, coming out of the 2018 crop year, they've got those ending stocks, uh, I think around 22 or 23 percent of, of usage. The 19 crop year, uh, about 15%. So far, so good. But as you look at the carryover coming out of the 2020 crop year, USDA's got that below 10%. And I I find that surprisingly low. How about you? Yeah, I, I definitely. And I, I think it goes back to the, the, the using 83.5 million acres. Uh, certainly, if there's another 1 to 2 million acres, uh, that could bring us above that 10%. Uh, but we talked about downside with respect to corn. Uh, obviously, there's downside with respect to soybeans related to export. I actually think there's some upside also. If we do hit that export number and acreage does not shift uh, as much as we think it might, uh, we could be looking at some relatively strong soybean prices. Those are big ifs, at least from my perspective. Those are a lot of ifs. And, Those are big ifs. But uh, right now, the U.S. the WASDE estimate is, is 820 soybeans. I, I don't think it's... Uh, out of the realm of possibility for that to be 850. Yeah, so for clarity, their forecast for the 2019 crop year is 850. 
And then, as you indicated, they're forecasting 820 for the 2020 crop year. The downside risk is there's a chance that number could go all the way to $8. Right? Definitely. If the export number, a uh, very real chance, if that export number is, 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 does not pan out, uh, it, could, it could go to $8 easily. So let's take a look at the budgets, and we really want to do a couple of things here, make some kind of some income projections, but also think a little bit about the incentive to possibly switch acreage from corn to soybeans at, at uh, this relatively late date. So uh, maybe, maybe give a couple of definitions here, Michael, before we move on. Yeah, we're going to be talking about net farm income and net return to land, and so let's define those terms uh, before we get too far down the road here. Uh, net farm income is is the accrual income measure off an income statement, accrual income statement. Um, it's gross revenue, accrual gross revenue adjusted for inventories minus cash expenses and depreciation. Uh, the very important note here is, is it does exclude operator and family labor. Uh, and also net farm income is what you use to repay debt. It's what you use to make machinery purchases. And so when I say uh, net farm income is negative, which I'm going to say uh, in, in, a, in a minute here, that means that it's, you're, you find it very difficult to cover those things. And so we got to find cash from elsewhere uh, to, cover, to cover labor, uh, repay debt, and to buy machinery. Uh, net return to land uh, is essentially gross revenue minus all cash and opportunity costs except for land. Uh, and so in this one, we do include opportunity costs. So for example, if you owned all your acres, uh, a rather far-fetched example, but if, if a farm owned all their acres, we charge rent. Uh, if, if you owned a million dollars worth of machinery, we charge a, an interest charge, if you will, or an opportunity cost uh, associated with the fact that you own all that machinery. Net return to land is something that we're going to talk about in relationship to cash rent. Okay, so let's look at the numbers, Michael. You've so, done some So using a case farm in West Central Indiana, let's talk about, uh, talk about net farm income prospects for 2020. Uh, this is somewhat depressing, Jim. Um, if, if we do not uh, see some COVID-19 payments, I don't have those factored into my, to my analysis, uh, but if we do not see some COVID-19 pay, uh, payments, the net farm income would be the lowest we've seen uh, since before 2007. Uh, even lower uh, than what, what occurred in 2015 uh, when West Central in Indiana had a very uh, wet June uh, with low yields. And so we're looking at some very low uh, net farm incomes uh, without those COVID-19 payments. Now, I would say that 18 and 19 would have also been relatively low, not as low as 2020, but they'd have cons been considerably lower without the MFP payments. Yeah, that's a good point. 18 and 19, those MFP payments had a huge impact. And I think this year, although we don't know the details, uh, I think that's still a wild card in terms of what the COVID-19 payments might be. Um, they could be substantial, uh, but they'd have to be pretty large, maybe on the magnitude of what we saw with the MFP program uh, to bring those uh, net farm income numbers up. Uh, to even break close, even. Yeah, to break even and... and truthfully, uh, need a, a sizable payment just to bring it up to where we were in 2015. Yes. So we've been getting some questions about uh, likely PLC and ARC County payments for corn and soybeans. And you've taken a look at that for both the 2019 crop year and the 2020 crop year. So give us those numbers, Michael. This is going to vary by county. So that's very important to note. Um, I, I would encourage you to use the 
use the University of Illinois tool or maybe the Texas A&M tool to do, get some estimates for your county. Uh, but let's look at White County, Indiana, the same location as the case form I was talking about previously. And certainly the corn PLC payments in 2020 are going to be considerably larger uh, than what we thought they were going to be because corn prices are relatively low. And so for White County, uh, plugging in that 320 corn price uh, in the WASDE report, we would be looking at a PLC payment of $65 per acre. So rather large PLC payment. Uh, that comes after a 2019 payment that was closer to $15 per acre. Uh, for soybeans, we don't look at near, near the response uh, because prices haven't dropped as much. And soybeans, uh, we, we were recommending people use the ARC County. That's just a different critter uh, in terms of calculating payments. And so for soybeans, uh, we, were, we were looking at a payment that's closer to, to uh, 15 to 20 15 to 25 dollars for both 19 and 20 and so and so corn uh, is, is is the commodity where you're looking at some pretty sizable PLC payments uh, but as we're going to talk about here in a minute that's not enough uh, to make up for the fact that corn price dropped so so much uh, you know as, to such to such a level in the last couple months I think one thing to, re to remember Michael is that uh, those payments, are not tied to the acres you plant, they're tied to the base acres. And that's yes. kind of important to think about. So usually when we think, think about this and we do budgets, and you're gonna show this here, or uh, talk about this in a minute, um, you like to do it on a blended basis where you've recognized that, right? Yeah, certainly corn and soybeans. Now, uh, if you were in Southern Illinois, Southern Indiana, or, or in the Western Corn Belt where they grow a lot more wheat, uh, you'd, you'd probably wanna separate that out because the wheat payments are, uh, are, are quite different uh, than corn and soybean. But usually when I'm looking at corn and soybean, uh, because the payments are based on base acres, I just average the two together and say that's the payment per acre for corn uh, and soybeans. So uh, taking, a, taking a look at difference in, in uh, earnings per acre, Earnings right? or profitability for corn and soybeans, uh, this has been rather a shocking development in the last two to three months. Uh, before the COVID-19 uh, really took hold, uh, you know, in January and February, we were looking at a situation where corn and soybean profitability, at least in the uh, in the eastern corn belt, looked very similar. And so we were not thinking that uh, uh, we'd see a lot of second year soybeans like we have seen quite a bit in the last three years. We thought there'd be uh, more more corn uh, relative relative to what there's been uh, in the last three years. That's changed so dramatically uh, in in the last few weeks. Uh, I did some number crunching recently, uh, in fact, a couple days ago, and right now, it looks like soybeans have an advantage on a per acre basis of $110 per acre. Uh, so a, a shift from pretty much the same profitability to an advantage towards soybeans of $110 per acre. That's very similar to the advantage soybeans had in 17 and 18 kind of the last heyday for soybeans uh, before, uh, before we had some export issues uh, with China. And so just a, just a dramatic shift here uh, in just a few weeks. Yeah, so just to reiterate that, you go back to that late December, January timeframe, it was essentially a, a toss up in terms of profitability between corn and beans. And now soybeans look better to the tune of over $100 an acre. And so that's why we're suggesting that there'll be some, at least some shifting of acreage. Uh, we're also, I'm also going to talk a little bit about uh, the contribution margin for, for corn and soybeans, looking at some uh, Purdue budgets. 
And uh, I want to define contribution margin before we do that. Uh, essentially, the contribution margin is the same as return over variable cost. And so this is your shutdown condition. Uh, if you can't cover variable cost, you should not produce a, a, a commodity or any item for that matter. Uh, and so typically, the contribution margin is significantly above uh, a variable cost. Uh, but let's talk about uh, what, what, what the contribution margin needs to pay. Uh, the contribution margin is needed to pay uh, labor, machinery, and land costs, and obviously those are pretty large costs. And so, uh, and, and, but that's what that's what that's what that's what we uh, try to have to cover uh, with the contribution margin. Uh, so, looking at the difference between late January and uh, mid-May in terms of corn production, uh, and, and looking at, at looking at the budgets, there's been a large drop in crop revenue. Uh, an increase in Art County PLC payment, but that's been relatively small uh, compared to the drop in crop revenue. And so the bottom line, uh, the bottom line here is we've we've lost seventy dollars per acre uh, in terms of expected uh, uh, a contribution margin for corn from late January to today. Looking at beans, uh, uh, soybeans also decreased price, but not near as rapidly as corn. And so uh, the bottom line for soybeans is the contribution margin is only about $10 less than what it was in late January. And so, and so um, you know, just a, a big difference in, in uh, potential profitability for corn versus soybeans. Yeah, just a big swing in a very short span of time. And the question is, was it, uh, was it too short a span of time for people to respond to it? And I guess we'll figure that out as, as we go forward. But I think both of us think there's a chance we're going to see at least – some acres on the margin shift, and uh, the numbers we've been tossing around is probably between one and two million acres uh, responding to, to this difference in profitability. Let's also talk about uh, soybean profitability compared to continuous corn. And here we're talking about land that was corn in 2019, and now we're deciding whether to put uh, soybeans on there or a second year corn or continuous corn. And the prospects for that do not look very good, uh, at least in the eastern Corn Belt. Uh, we're going to see some continuous corn in the western Corn Belt. Uh, Nebraska, for example, usually has two to one uh, corn to soybeans. So there's going to be areas where we're going to see continuous corn, but I don't expect to see a lot of it in the eastern Corn Belt, simply because uh, it, it just does not look like that's going to be a very profitable decision. Looking at uh, a second-year soybeans versus rotation corn, um, Rotation corn still has to do fairly well from a price standpoint. The same have the same profitability as as, uh, as second year soybeans. In fact, we've done some calculations to show uh, that corn would have to be 335 or above uh, to have the same profitability as second year soybeans. Having said that, uh, you know uh, this is a signal on the margin. Uh, you know a lot of people had, had uh, you know. Uh, put some herbicide down or put some fertilizer down. So they're not going to make a, a change in their, in their corn plantings, you know, based on this information. But on the margin, uh, I think we are going to see some shifting uh, from uh, acres that we that they thought was going to go into corn, but these latest developments uh, might go into soybeans. And particularly on some of, the, some of the later plantings, and especially maybe here in the eastern corn belt, as you've kind of indicated. Now I want to uh, talk about cash rent and net return to land. Uh, this is not a pleasant discussion by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, net return to land has been below cash rent ever since 2013. Uh, in 2013, net return to land was similar to cash rent. 
Uh, these are directly comparable. Uh, we use net return to land to pay for cash rent. Uh, since that time, net return to land has been lower, uh, lower than cash rent. In 2015, uh, we already talked about that. That was a very low, uh, a low net return year. We saw a rather large drop uh, in cash rent uh, from 15 and 16, and, and I think that's largely due uh, to the to the low net returns in 14 and particularly 15. Uh, 17 also was not a real a very good year, uh, but we still had a, a had a net return to land in 17 that was $150, and so that's below the cash rent, uh, but it, it's not that much below. Uh, uh, in 18 and 19, because of the MFP payments, uh, net return to land was below cash rent, but it wasn't it wasn't so low that uh, uh, that there was as much need to negotiate cash rent. Now let's turn to 2020. Uh, the cash rent in, in 2020, um, or 20, uh, you know, the latest Purdue uh, Purdue estimate last August uh, was $241. The net return to land that we've estimated without the COVID-19 payments is less than $100. And so we're talking about $150 difference between cash rent and net return to land. Uh, even with a sizable COVID payment, um, let's just say that was $50, for example, you're still talking a lot of difference between net return to land and cash rent, I think we're going to have downward pressure on cash rent uh, for the first time uh, since 2016. Yeah, and to put that in perspective, Michael, if you look back and, for example, in 2019, looking at your numbers, um, and this includes the MFP payment, the spread between that return, net return to land and cash rent was only about $30 an acre, meaning the cash rent was about $30 higher than the net return to land. In 2018, that difference was a, probably a little closer to about $20 with the cash rent running about $20 above that estimated net return to land. That's a big, big difference compared to what you're projecting this year. And so, you know, as you point out, even if that COVID-19 payment um, is $50, $75 an acre, it still puts downward pressure on cash rental rates for the 2021 crop year. And, and it's largely reflecting the lower corn price. I mean, yes, soybeans are, the price is not as good as what it was the last year or two, but it, it's primarily a, a corn price situation. Uh, when you take corn prices uh, uh, from the high threes uh, in Indiana, they, you know, some people got $4, uh, if, you know, depending on their marketing strategy, and you take that down to something closer to $3, uh, you're talking a game changer. Yeah, very much so. Well, with that, uh, the slides that we covered uh, in our video webinar, uh, which are also the basis for this podcast, Michael, those are going to be available on our website. So if you want to download these slides in some more detail, those are available on the website. They'll be in the uh, archived webinars uh, or past webinars section of the, uh, of the website. Uh, so you can download those there easily and, and maybe look at these in some more detail. Um, our next Ag Outlook webinar is going to come up on the 12th of June. That'll be a video uh, that you can watch. And we'll do another podcast uh, on this following the webinar as well. So you can listen to it as a podcast or watch it as a, as a video. But that'll be on June the 12th. Uh, that is the day after the USDA releases their June World Ag Supply Demand Estimate. So we'll have the updated information. And then, of course, looking a little farther ahead, June at the end of June, uh, USDA will be releasing the uh, planting report 
uh, with updated acreage estimates, and we'll do an updated outlook following that as well. So with that, we're going to wrap up today's podcast. Uh, So for more information, you could visit our website, purdue.edu slash commercial ag. Um, And on behalf of the Center for Commercial Agriculture and Michael Langemeyer, I'm Jim Minnert. Thanks for listening.